everything should be about business. Emotions should never come into a deal. I know tenants and landlords both can become emotionally attached to a property or a concept or an individual deal point that you know does not correlate to your return on investment. So I always try to just frame things in a very black and white. And so I always try to you know really be a mediator. I don't have any skin in the game is what I tell people. I want to get the deal done if it makes sense. And I want to get the deal done if it works for the tenant and the landlord. I want everyone to make money. That's yep. the whole goal. Welcome to Invest for the Win, where we discuss strategies to win at the game of private investing. Whether you're a novice or a seasoned investor, tune in to hear experts break down complex topics and reveal emerging trends in private investing. Head over to investforthewin.com to find links to these episodes and additional content. Position yourself to invest for the win. Hosted by the founders of FTW Investments, Logan Freeman, Corey Tuck, and Parker Webb. Today, we have Charlie Lowe with Crossroads Real Estate Group, where we discuss the past, present, and future of retail in Kansas City. We will explore the importance of having a level head in leasing negotiations, exciting projects coming down the pike in Kansas City, and how to position retail properties to maximize their value for shareholders and stakeholders alike. On today's show, we have Charlie Lowe of Crossroads Real Estate Group. And today, we're talking about the retail real estate market. Charlie began his career in retail development, leasing, and brokerage in 2013 with Legacy Development, a national development firm. Within his first year, Charlie represented multiple shopping centers containing over 600,000 square feet, including Wyandotte Plaza and Truman's Marketplace, two of Kansas City's highest profile redevelopments that year. In 2016, Charlie was promoted to senior leasing manager and assumed the lead leasing role for over 1.3 million square feet, including the streets of Brentwood in Brentwood, California, Ward Parkway Center, a power center in Closed Mall in Kansas City, and Liberty Commons, a newly developed power center located in Liberty, Missouri. His persistence, competitiveness, and tenacity helped him land five first-to-market restaurant concepts at the Ward Parkway Center's Restaurant Pavilion and over 95,000 square feet of new tenants to the project in total. In January of 2018, Charlie joined Crossroads Real Estate Group as a partner. Since joining Crossroads, Charlie has played a critical role in leasing ground-up developments, including Summit Orchard, a power center in Lee Summit, Missouri, and Phase 2 of Prairie Fire, a 100,000-square-foot mixed-use project in Johnson County, Kansas. Charlie grew up about an hour and a half northwest of Kansas City in Maryville, Missouri, home to Northwest Missouri State University, where Charlie went on to play football and was a member of the 2009 National Championship football team. With a passion for community building, Charlie is currently a board member for Urban Rangers Corps, Black Excellence KC, and Troost Market Collective. Charlie, thank you for joining us today. I'm looking forward to diving into your career and insights into the retail real estate industry. Thanks for having me on, Parker. You bet. So one of the things we want to start with is, you know, inspiration, um, kind of what inspires you about what you what you do. And, and I want to start here first to say between your college years and legacy development, um, you know, was there a pivotal moment that led you into retail real estate? Was there a mentor who helped guide you into this business as well as through your early years in the business? Yeah. So I think I was really fortunate at legacy. I had a lot of mentors, honestly, um, on the development side, uh, Bart Lowen, who's now you know heading up development at Price Brothers. My office was in between him and uh, Wes Grammer, who obviously is doing a lot at Sky, um, focusing on Crossroads and a lot of cool projects there. But 
it was essentially uh, an open cubicle between two open doors so I could hear the conversations that they were both having. Um, Bart was incredible because he was working on all these multi-million dollar redevelopments. And as an intern, I could walk into his office when I had a question and he would take the time to actually explain the process, explain why, you know, the performer was changed and, you know, the importance of basis points and really all of the things that you don't necessarily focus on as much as a true leasing agent or a listing agent. Um, so that was really beneficial. Uh, through that process, I think it wasn't necessarily so much inspiration, but you know, my plan previously was to go on my master's degree at KU's, KU Edwards campus in Overland Park. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I graduated in December of 2012. The program didn't start until September of uh, 2013. So I had a pretty big gap and legacy was just supposed to be a temporary thing. And through the process of going through the pro formas and seeing the fees associated, the income potential, um, honestly, it was a pretty easy decision. On, yeah, right on. You know, maybe, maybe going into the public sector after another uh, two to three years of school and apprenticeship and all these things, maybe I should just stick with this. So I would say I had a lot of great mentors, Joanna Shaver, another one, Andy Crimmins, um, Lee Ray Johnson, who's now with Mace Rich. And the team there was incredible. And just to be a fly on the wall in some of those conversations, invaluable learning experience. But I mean, truth be told, getting into the performance, seeing the income potential and CRE, it was a pretty, pretty quick and easy decision to make. Yeah, right on. I mean, I kind of same story for me. I mean, I found the the business sort of by happenstance. And then when I got in, a bunch of guys, I'm in a bullpen and they're all on the phone, just hammering folks, right? So you just kind of just peek your ear up and you're listening, like, what do they say? What's that mean? How they had that conversation? Oh, they they sold that like this. Cool. And so you just learn so much, I think, from just being in that environment. So today, as you're you know continuing to expand and grow your career, um, what continues to inspire you uh, about this business and about the work that you do? You know, the thing that's really inspiring to, to me today is the ability to create a sense of community in place, um, whether that's in Westport or 18th and Vine Jazz District or you know the Troost Corridor, Crossroads. I've always lived in Midtown. When I first moved to Kansas City um, as an intern, making $15 an hour, I made too much to be in the income-restricted housing, but obviously didn't make enough to live just about anywhere else. So I lived at Mac Properties, Clyde Manor, off mm-hmm. of East Armour and Gillum. And I'm pretty sure uh, I can see it uh, from my, my office right now. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Down the street there. Yep. Uh, I will tell you, in 2012, 2013, the dynamics of that intersection were a lot different. Um, You know, there was, I always felt safe. I think it was fairly safe, but just on the other side of Gillum, you know, you did have people selling drugs, prostitution. Uh, People did get their cars broken into. Shootings would take place not far down the street. I mean, things have changed a lot. And, you know, you could go into the whole conversation of gentrification, pros and cons, um, displacement, all that stuff, you know, it's a long discussion to get into that. And again, pros and cons to both. But always being a resident of Midtown and kind of always 
you know, going down the truce corridor, just walking my dog when I first moved to town, um, going up to 18th and Vine. Soiree is really kind of the only place since they've been opened that I frequent. Uh, before the Bayou on Vine mm-hmm. was a spot I always used to go back in the day. Um, seeing the crossroads grow, going to Westport more than I probably should have when I was young. <laughs> yeah. Um, being in those areas, it's been fun to watch it grow, but it's also been fun to, you know, have clients like Mac Properties that own a lot, a large, I mean, I think they've got 2,100 units today. In the next two years, they'll have over 2,500 units on that armor spine from Broadway over to Truce. And then being able to help place retail tenants of uh, Truce and Armor, that's really fun. And I enjoy that because it's something I have a passion for. Um, Working with Pulse Development to put in the Fountain House, Providence Pizza, stuff like that over in Westport. And then, you know, the thing I'm really most excited about is, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have reached out to Kelvin Simmons at the right time a couple of years back and I'm helping him out. Uh, with all the redevelopments at 18th and Vine. And so, you know, I don't think people really recognize how much is about to come online there. You know, you're talking about potentially just under 400 multifamily units in the next four years added over there. On top of that, you're talking about 70,000 square feet of ground floor retail that's going to come Huge. online. And it's going to transform not just the 18th and Vine district, but I think it transforms the perception of kind of East Kansas city and what's possible from a development standpoint there. So that's what um, I'm really excited about. But again, it kind of all goes back to um, creating a sense of community, helping kind of build the city where I've really always lived kind of the live work play dynamics are just a real thing for me. Cause I live in union Hill, have a, owned a home here since 2015. So now my wife and I, we can hop on the streetcar, go yep. downtown, then literally hop on a bird on 18th Street and be over at 18th and Vine, full process, under 20 minutes, and not use a vehicle at all. So, Well, it's so cool. I mean, in each of those projects, too, you talked about, I mean, those, those are transformational community developments that happen, right? I mean, there's, you know, what Mac's done in Midtown, what Kelvin's doing in 18th and Vine, you know, the crossroads. I mean, those, these are just, these are placemaking kind of developments that have just become so cool and such an, such an important fabric of our city today. Uh, so these kind of projects are, are the stuff that I think is so exciting and so, so fun to see. Uh, and I love buying stuff nearby what they're doing so that it makes, uh, makes everybody some money. So there you go. Well, let's jump into a little bit about, I mean, you've, you've gotten a lot of these assignments and a lot of these, these projects you've worked on because you've been able to establish yourself as an expert in the space. So, you know, with your, your background, you know, what have, what have you done to position yourself as an expert in your craft and how have you, how have you built that expertise in this business? I think a lot of different ways. I mean, first and foremost, again, my foundation, I have to give credit to Um, everything I learned at Legacy Development. Um, You know, Chuck Oglesby, who's head of Legacy Asset Management, he was also someone that door was always open. I could go in and talk through anything with Chuck and he would provide another layer of expertise from the asset management side and more so the presentation side. So, you know, working on the Ward Parkway Center, the streets of Brentwood, 
we were partnered on those projects with REITs. And obviously when you're working with a company like uh, DRA or Bearings Property Group, which is like a subsidiary of Mass Mutual, it's not just, hey, here's a deal. What do you think? Here are my comments. It's no, provide deliverables and provide context. And so, you know, being able to provide an actual financial analysis that pairs with the lease terms or the red line in the letter of intent, showing the gain and basis points or the loss. And if there's a loss, what's the rationale for that in year one? Maybe you are taking a loss, but year two, you know, instead of just a 2%, 3% bump in rent, you know, we've got them to agree to a 10% bump in year two. And then year three, we're back to five. And then it's a 10-year deal. Five years down the road, we're doing another 10% bump. So it looks bad for that first year, but you're actually going to end up way ahead on the term of the lease. So presentation was a big thing. Um, also, just constantly consuming as much information as possible, whether it's the business journal, city scene. Um, CoStar has a lot of good information. I would say a lot of that is not necessarily relevant to Kansas City. Um, sure. I get it. Uh, obviously, there's more activity on the coast and major markets, and there's not as much to talk about here in town, I suppose. But also having conversations, grabbing coffee with other you know, leaders in the industry, and not just other brokers, but other you know, stakeholders, property owners, attorneys, contractors, getting that overall, um, you know, a high level view from all of them and what they're seeing in the market. And then, you know, just sharing information. A lot of times there's information, as you know, because uh, I think you've done a lot of the same things. There's information out there that you can't consume through the print media. You have to have those conversations with, you know, a property owner, the developer, the attorneys, whoever's involved in these deals that you've got interest on, I just would always shoot them a note, send them an email or a text with somebody I know, hey, I see you're involved in, you know, a midtown development. Let's catch up, grab coffee. I'm working on something up the street. What are you sure. seeing as far as your existing tenants? How are they doing? Are they healthy? Are they struggling with, you know, right now, I think a lot of people struggling with staff, struggling with inflation, things like that. Um, how is it affecting you know, their health ratio and their sales? Those things have been super helpful. Um, obviously, COVID, it was a little bit more challenging to do some of that. But at the same time, I think people were more accessible through Zoom and other means. So you know, becoming an expert, quote unquote, I don't know that I would consider myself an expert in all facets by any means. Um, I think there are certain pockets of this city that, you know, if you were to ask me the ins and outs of what's going on in, you know, Western Shawnee or, you know, some of those more suburban markets, I would point you to my partner, John Knoll, or someone who's been boots on the ground in that market for years. Um, KC Mo, though, I think I have a very high level of competency because, again, I'm here every single day, um, you know, weekends, I'm still here going about, I see things pop up. Every time I see something pop up as well, I think I make a, I make a point to go talk to that business owner and just get 
not try and press them to open up a new location, but just see how they're doing, what their thoughts are on their new location in the crossroads and just getting a feel for their impression of the market as well. Because even though that's anecdotal and their opinion might not be founded in, you know, the overall, you know, big picture, the macroeconomics of a trade area, it still matters to get that individual's perspective and understand the challenges or the positives and the things that are working and the things that don't. Because I do, obviously, as you know, a lot of tenant rep as well with small business owners. And so I don't like just sending them a one, three, five demographic survey and saying, hey, got this off CoStar. It checks all the demos you're looking for. Let's just put you here. Because that doesn't tell the story of foot traffic, customer patterns, um, any of that, which, in my opinion, no, you need a story. Yeah, absolutely. But that's kind of, in my personal opinion, one of the, the failings of Mace, which Tobman with the plaza. You know, a lot of things that they've done look good on paper. And I understand when you buy at a, what, a, a sub five cap, like a four nine, you do have to figure out a way to, um, juice then a lot. And so I think they looked at the uh, rent rolls and saw local regional operators coming up on lease expirations and renewals and decided, hey, this is our opportunity to get a little bit more juice. And uh, it's backfired. Horribly. Yeah. Um, it took the life away. You know, I mean, that's the what, what gave that place life. I've ever absolutely. moved. A, a couple important things there that stood out to me that you said, Charlie, they all come back kind of the same thing about bringing in multiple perspectives. When I was at Zimmer, you know, first starting out, I mean, the KPIs that I had, right, was, you know, 100 cold calls a day or whatever. Plus, every week I had to meet with an architect or an attorney or somebody. Every week I had to have phone calls with those folks, people I wasn't going to necessarily do a deal with. But to bring in all that perspective makes you better at what you're doing. And like you talked about, you represent tenants, you represent landlords, you've gained this understanding of what a tenant needs and how it needs to, how it views its occupancy and its occupancy costs. You understand what a landlord needs, what a landlord needs as far as the financial return on investment. And so when you understand both of those things, it gives you a whole bunch more opportunity to bridge gaps between what a tenant wants and a landlord wants, because you can restructure deals to help meet and achieve you know, those needs, like you said, Hey, attendance just going to open up a new place. They want a little cheaper deal year one. Cause they're going to have the most expense and the most exposure. And so they want to be able to get the most revenue. So, Hey, we'll give it to you guys year two, year three forward, but year one, give us a deal so that we can come in there. And that helps make the pro forma work, helps make it work for the tenant. And ultimately you took a deal that might've been dead and, and you made a deal out of it. So that's, that's super, uh, super impressive. Um, let's jump into, a negotiation, right? As we're talking about that. So what, as you talk about when you're out negotiating deals, you're negotiating tenant rep, landlord rep, whatever, what are three takeaways you might have when you're negotiating those deals, uh, things to be aware of, things to understand, things that people need to, to know more about when they're negotiating these deals? The biggest thing that I would say that, um, and again, everyone negotiates differently. And I don't think there's any right or wrong way to do it. But the thing that I've noticed the most with uh, deals that have gone south quickly is coming in to a deal with an adversarial mentality of it's me versus the tenant as the landlord, or it's the tenant versus the landlord. And it's not viewed as a partnership. If you come in and it's a I win, they lose, or vice versa scenario. It's 
it's it makes the deal infinitely more difficult to get done because it becomes emotional. It's not about business. It's not about economics. It's not about returns. It's about, I got to beat this guy or woman, whoever it may be. And that's what kills me the most in any situation. Um, so, you know, I think, again, going back to kind of what I had learned when I started, everything should be about business. Emotions should never come into a deal. I know tenants and landlords both can become emotionally attached to a property or a concept or an individual deal point that, you know, does not correlate to your return on investment. So I always try to just frame things in a very black and white, hey, this deal makes sense because of X, Y, and Z in the deal terms. And this deal also makes sense because your return on this deal in comparison to sitting on it for another six months or your return on this deal in comparison to the other deal we have, you know, you know how it goes on the landlord rep side. A lot of properties are going to be negotiating multiple letters of intent and in some cases, leveraging those deals against each other. Nothing wrong with that. That's just part of the business. But sometimes landlords will want to go down a certain path with a concept or tenant, even if the other deal may be better because of a personal dispute. And so I always try to you know, really be a mediator. I don't have any skin in the game is what I tell people. I want to get the deal done if it makes sense. And I want to get the deal done if it works for the tenant and the landlord. I want everyone to make money. That's yep. the whole goal. And I certainly don't want to be releasing a space in six months or a year because I view it as a reflection of myself. And I know that's not everyone's view uh, from a brokerage standpoint, but I think it is important important to have some sense of ownership in a deal sure. um, as opposed to just having a purely transactional relationship with your, your landlord partner or your tenant. So yeah. you want both to be successful, right? I mean, if you're, if you're not doing deals that are making them successful, those transactions are going to, are going to stop happening. Right. So you want to exactly. make sure that you're doing deals that everybody's going to be happy with. No one has buyers or sellers remorse, you know, shortly thereafter. So for sure. So in that respect, you know, when, when it's always funny, right? You talk about people, you say, Hey, I'm in real estate. They say, Oh, can you sell my house? Right. Or something like that. Um, but you know, what, what is something else that you think, you know, people might misunderstand about you and your business? I think it goes back to what I was saying before. I think most people view brokers um, as strictly transactional, you know, money grabbers, which is understandable because you and I both know a lot of people in our industry that are brokers that certainly fit the bill. Um, I think it's changing slowly but surely um, from an age standpoint. Uh, I think, you know, the stereotypical millennials, we tend to be a little bit more uh, cognizant of other people's well-being in the industry, I think. And um, that is probably the biggest misconception because obviously I'm involved with a lot of nonprofit organizations. I uh, am somewhat involved in you know, city government. I know, know people at the EDC, city council, so on and so forth. And I always think the initial conversation that I have with people is the assumption that we don't give a damn about what happens to people in the community or you know, we are only out to just gobble up properties, displace people, and you know, 
on stuff on the east side, the assumption is based on past precedent, which is very understandable. Assumption is we're going to buy a property, buy land, build a sh- shopping center, and then put in Cricket Wireless, a liquor store, Boost right. Mobile, and payday loans, and not bring anything that actually provides advancement, job opportunities, uh, a sense of community, destination, entertainment, provides none of them. It's really just, um, you know, I, projects like that, I would consider to be a little bit more predatorial. Yeah. So I, I think... I think that's the big misconception is if you're in commercial real estate and you're a broker, then you don't care about anybody but yourself. And your only goal is to get deals done, irrespective of who it's with, how it's done and uh, at whose expense it is. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that kind of made me transition into this business, cause I was, you know, down the same path you were sort of and. um, when you think about like a city like Kansas City, where we had a guy like J.C. Nichols do a lot of things that J.C. Nichols did and spread that across the entire United States and create racial dividing lines and everything else. You know, one of those things is when you hear those stories and you see the state of the world and you go, there's like got to be a better way. And, you know, when you think about it, like the, the only way to make a better way is to get your boots dirty, so to speak, and get in there and do it. So I think what you're doing to change that, to create space and community and the places that you know, we all want at, you know, no matter where our neighborhood is, that's so cool. And I think that that's so impactful in these communities. And I, and yeah, there's going to be a whole lot of folks that are not further apprehensive about that, but you know, once you're able to get in there and prove that you can do it the right way. And you got guys like Kelvin who are all pro who you can go in there and do that stuff. Right. You start to build that sense of trust with the community. It starts to change the narrative. And then there just allows for more and more opportunity to make better and cooler places. So hundred um, well, I want to talk a little bit about your method and how you approach the business. And we've gotten a little bit of that from you, obviously. One of the things I want to talk to you about is um, redevelopment. This is selfishly because this is something that we do and something that I like to do. Um, but as you are looking at redevelopments and some of the redevelopment projects you all have been involved with, both from the pro forma side and whatever, I want to know from you, you know, when you guys or from your perspective, you look at a building, right? And A, how do you identify a building that might be in a good position for redevelopment? And then B, what kind of things would you look to do to that building in order to better position that property in the marketplace? It's a good questions. I think it is obviously very different on which property you're talking about. Um, and just to be frank, you know, the two low-hanging fruit uh, from a redevelopment standpoint, where the Ward Parkway Center, Liberty Commons, incredibly well positioned geographically. Demographics were incredible for both. Density on the Ward Parkway Center is, you know, just incredibly hard to compete with. Um, so those were you know, like the Ward Parkway Center. Originally, we were going to put uh, a Dick Sporting Goods. We we're going to relocate them from inline, build a 50,000 square foot box, and just do one restaurant. There is a CID on that property. So sales generation is a huge component of the success of the project and the public financing piece. So on that one, once we got into the process and we're negotiating a deal with Dix, that's a, you know, starts out being a single digit rent deal for a retailer that had historically been under $5 million in sales in their current location and projected to, you know, hey, maybe we're going to get up to that six, eight million once we get open in our new spot. 
versus, hey, Ward Parkway, Red Snapper is the only, like, void analysis is very, very, very important. And that's another mm-hmm. thing I learned at Legacy. So the first thing I did when I was tasked with that project, I did a void analysis on retail, restaurants, entertainment. And it became very, very clear that we had a huge opportunity with restaurants. Red Snapper was the only restaurant within a one mile radius, only full service sit down restaurant within a one mile radius, within that same one mile radius because of Burns and Mac, Black and Veatch, all of those guys. We had over 11,000 employees (laughs) right there that were looking for places to eat and wanted to have business lunches. And they were all going to the plaza or to Corinth or to Mission Farms but there was nothing to service the immediate customer base. So, you know, had a conversation with uh, Dan and Bart and it was a pretty clear that, Hey, maybe we do scrap the, the Dick's sporting goods discussion and let's just create this restaurant village. And so that was kind of an easy one. When you're talking about properties that I think are, you know, the Wyandotte plazas of the world, that's a, that's a project that, you know, I came in, they were already well down the road on, but I think my understanding, you know, talking to Wes and those guys, that was about uh, geography and access off 70 to state line or state Ave and 78th street. That was a major thoroughfare and you were kind of dead center between obviously going to, you know, Quindaro in that area and then all the new growth towards the legends. And so it was just geographically positioned well, and the price was right. Um, When you're talking about stuff in the city, I think that's been really fascinating to watch because, you know, Mac has created their own market. And if you have the ability to come in and have the vision, but also obviously have the capital, you can create your own market in and of itself. And so they didn't have to really position themselves a certain way. It's just, they saw, you know, okay, we've got UMKC, University Health, Children's Mercy. We have all these economic drivers where young people are looking to live in close proximity to that. And they maybe can't afford to pay top dollar because they're students or residents, whatever it may be. And so again, it just came down to geography. We're talking about, and I assume you're talking about some of this uh, grocery anchored projects and strip centers. You know, I love neighborhood centers. <laughs> Absolutely. I think those can be a little bit more challenging from a repositioning standpoint, um, simply because I think at times there can be a few more unknowns. And I also think, you know, you don't have control of the surrounding neighborhood and trying to reset the market. Um, you got to create upgrades from, you know, is that lighting? Is that facade upgrades? Are that, you know, larger tenant improvement packages for someone to come in and, you know, redo a space to put in a restaurant? Um, all of those things are super important. And in a lot of cases necessary to get you know, your, your return on investment and get those lease rates up above, you know, your immediate market comps. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things we found too, right? It, it is a, it's a different 
it's a different process, right? I mean, when you have a power center or a mall or, you know, large grocery anchored or kind of superstore anchored type stuff, um, you've got these kind of traffic drivers or whatever else. And so, you know, like the Grandview project that we did right across from Truman's Marketplace, our concept was basically, hey, we know Truman's Marketplace is going to drive traffic, but I don't have to pay for price shoppers credit or any of those people's credit. We can buy this shopping center and we've seen traffic counts go from three to 20,000 plus over in that area. And we have the opportunity to, to improve it. Now, we delivered that shopping center in the middle of COVID. So that was about the worst time you could deliver a new project. But since then, we've seen a huge increase in, in what we would call the, you know, the e-commerce resistant tenants. So we've seen, you know, beauty supply, um, liquor store interest, restaurant interest, and those kinds of places, as well as I think the one thing you end up with in neighborhood centers, especially unanchored centers that you don't have to really think about for other retail projects is you end up with a lot more of like traditional office type users, or it's the insurance guy or the professional services, tax preparers, et cetera. So um, you kind of, those neighborhood centers kind of serve more as almost just like a neighborhood commercial property because they're not really true retail, although you do have retail and restaurants, but you also have, you know, office type users. So absolutely. Um, one thing I thought was interesting was about your, your concept of, you know, doing the void analysis, right? This is something that we all have looked at, but talk me through when you're looking at a project and you're thinking void analysis, you know, tenant mix is so important for these projects. So when you go into a new project, you're doing that void analysis, walk me through in your mind, what you're doing and how you're evaluating it and trying to determine what that tenant mix is going to look like in a shopping center. Yeah, for sure. So, um, obviously gave the example on Ward Parkway. I think another good one was really the Truce and Armor Development doing with Mac Properties. Um, obviously, the Truce corridor has really blown up over the last few years, starting from 27th Street down through um, really the Truce Village that drops down to what Linwood. Yep. You know, there's a lot of growth right there. And then everything I would say south of 39th Street, same thing. Um, then if you know you look at it, we're really talking about Midtown as a trade area. Mm-hmm. as opposed to just the truce corridor. But looking at things that have historically not been on the corridor was kind of my first thing. Um, obviously, grocery is something Huge. that has not existed. And if it has, it's been your family dollar, dollar general, you know, sugary, unhealthy products, packaged goods, nothing great. So or when you like when I lived in Midtown and I just went to Costco and so I could only buy in bulk, right? That was my my only exactly. option. Exactly. So I thought, you know, financial services, grocery, and then full service sit down restaurant were the ones that I came up with right off the bat. Just going up the streets, going down, you know, just driving around, frankly, and looking at what was there. You also get a feel for when you're driving around who's really out and about during the day, at night, during breakfast, who's using the public transit lines, you know, when all of those things are really active, I think are important to truly understand. Because, you know, again, going back to the 135 demo rings, those are not representative whatsoever of the Truce Corridor or in particular the Armor and Truce Corridor. You've got such a mixed income, mixed demographic right there. And the traffic flows far exceed what 
you know, the latest traffic counts show on CoStar. And so I saw that this was an opportunity for, you know, organic grocer because, you know, community grocers, those in the crossroads, uh, whenever he opened up, I got in touch with him just to, again, hey, cool business. Um, just want to see how you're doing, you know, what your plans are for the future. Let's stay in touch. And we kind of just stayed in touch for a while, uh, then got connected with Mac, picked up that project. And, you know, funny enough, he had been looking to do something on the east side. He just didn't know where. And so I said, Troost is the first opportunity that you should really take advantage of because it's not too far east for, you know, the organic grocery concept to be entirely foreign or unattainable. But, you know, he also has a program where he accepts, you know, SNAP and, you know, government. Yeah. So it made perfect sense. Um, Chase Bank is going over there as well. That made perfect sense. And then I can't share who the full service guys are, but, you know, minority owned, uh, experienced restaurateurs are going over there as well. And that, you know, to circle back, that was another thing that I noticed, bizarrely enough, there is a void on the Truce Corridor of minority owned businesses. Mm. Um, you know, you got Chris Good at Ruby Jeans and yep. Urban Cafe uh, down south, one pair down south off of like 51st and Truce. So you've got a couple, but for what was historically a Black corridor, to only have a handful of people that actually had some semblance of ownership didn't make a lot of a lot of sense to me either. So, what a cool way to think about that too, Charlie. I mean, you know, everybody's like, okay, there's no retail, there's no sit down, there's no whatever. But to say there's no minority owned businesses or women owned businesses and say that's a void. How do we add that to this community? What a cool perspective to bring to that project as well. Uh, I, I think that's gonna be exciting. We we need a grocery. Um, you know, bringing financial services to the east side, bringing grocery. I mean, that, that's going to be a really cool project. And I think that's, you know, that's a, a unit. When you think about tenant mix, right, it's, it's, it's A, how do these folks all play well together? But it's obviously B, how do these folks play well with the community? And we're saying, you know, hey, there's a void, there's a need. So let's get the right groups to provide, you know, they're going to add traffic to one another. They're going to not eat each other's parking too much. And they're also going to add, be incredibly accretive to the, the goals of the community. I think it's incredible. Um, I want to jump into uh, skip a step because we've been having a good conversation. But I'm going to go ahead and jump into the prediction side of things. Um, as you look at you know the retail real estate business, um, it could be Kansas City specifically, but what? Give me a few predictions that you might have about where you think the retail real estate business is headed. So this is a pretty hot take, and I've and this is explicitly, I have to state, this is explicitly for Kansas City, Missouri, I would say south of the river, um, probably through, I would say probably through Waldo, like Waldo Flats. So 75th Gregory area. Sure. I say it was exclusively for that pocket, but I think the direction we're going, you know, the Kansas City market in totality we currently have what's considered a hyper supply of retail mm -hmm. just from a GLA standpoint. So you drive anywhere, any of the highways, 71, 70, 29, whatever it may be, you see all these dead Kmarts, um, shopping centers with extremely high vacancy. But at the same time, it's we're building new retail products. 
<clears throat> so I, I think we are going to see a bigger shift towards, you know, we're already seeing a lot of urban infill, but I think it's going to be more mixed use urban infill that is starting to service neighborhoods in pockets to where it becomes more walkable. People are always gonna have cars in Kansas City. I'm not gonna be one of those people that thinks 10 years from now, no one in Kansas City is gonna drive a car because that's not realistic or practical. It's just not. Yep. But I do think people that live and work in the urban core are going to want to shop at um, a city target, are gonna wanna shop at uh, Trader Joe's and they're not gonna wanna go to the Burbs to do it. Yep. So, you know, city target, I know it's been a conversation on the plaza. Hopefully that doesn't happen because that would be uh, a pretty big downfall. To yeah, move them. that thing north. So. Exactly. You know, somewhere in Midtown would make sense. Somewhere downtown in the central business district would make sense. Wherever it goes, just not there. Yep. I think it's going to shift to more uh, European style retail experience where you've got nodes of retail that service, you know, an immediate one mile bubble. And you'll be able to get your groceries, go to restaurants, um, get your pet care needs, all of that being within one mile bubbles. And you're seeing it a little bit, I would say, with, you know, what's going on in Union Hill and Martini Corner, what's going on in the crossroads, what's going on in the river market. There are these pockets where it's starting to shift to that already. And I think with a streetcar coming online, going south, you know, Midtown, as you know, you guys are right off the streetcar. I think the growth potential for that main street corridor is going to far exceed the crossroads because we already have the built-in density. We've got the residential component that's already there. You've got the traffic that's already there. It's just, there is a void in retail. You've got entertainment node in Westport, but the main street corridor is just going to explode. And that's one of the things I'm most excited about. Yeah, that's what, you know, like Quality Hill, High Park, incredibly beautiful neighborhoods that have virtually nothing to walk to. You know, I mean, there's been few things popping through, but as you see these projects come, huge void. And I know I've talked to so many folks who live in Midtown, have lived in Midtown, have left Midtown. And they're like, well, you know, sure, we got this nice little park to walk around, but I can't go get groceries. There's one place to get a cup of coffee and it's not very good or whatever else, right? And so I think is I think if that continues to happen, you're right. I mean, we've got the streetcar coming down Main Street. It's going to make it so much more accessible and so much more valuable to do all that. And I can't wait to see that happen. So I'm excited that you think that's going to happen. Anything else you think is going to happen in the next few months as it relates to you know, some of those trends or any technology you think that's kind of changing the game right now? Oh, the technology is interesting. I'm seeing a lot more people use um, geoplacing technology as opposed to just relying on the CoStar stuff, which I love CoStar. If anyone from CoStar listens to this, I use it all the time, but you're not getting real-time data. You're just not. And so Placer AI and a few of these other groups that track cell phone data and show, you know, shopping trends from last weekend. If I wanted to see what everyone was doing for the last two weeks in Midtown or the Union Hill neighborhood, where everyone that lived in Union Hill was shopping and where they're going to eat, I could pull that up on a heat map and it would tell me exactly what their shopping trends were, how many hours they spend at a certain area, 
and how many times a week they frequent those areas. And I think that is going to become a really invaluable tool for, for developers in particular, because when you're going through an analysis and you're studying just the existing demographics and traffic patterns, you can't tell from that where people are coming from, how much time they're spending in a certain location. And of course, there's not a direct one-for-one correlation between time spent here and money spent there, but I think they're pretty close. Um, Just going off of, you know, rent rolls I have from some of my landlord partners and, you know, looking at the the placer AI data and then talking to some of my retail tenants and getting their sales volumes and looking at that data, they're pretty close to, you know, hey, X number of dollars equals X number of times traveled or certain number of hours spent. So that's I can something. certainly verify that when my wife is looking to uh, keep my kiddo occupied and she goes to Target, the more time she spends at Target, the more money she's spending at Target. See, there you go. Um, no, that's transformational technology and what a cool product, both on the kind of, you know, site and search of use, the more development mindset, as well as the use and search of site, more the tenants perspective on things to be able to evaluate that, see these niches, see these opportunities. You see people traveling, you know, to Ward Parkway because they want to buy groceries It's because they're going to Trader Joe's. So how do we get that back to Midtown so that people can have that experience close by? Um, sure. It will increase the number of sales and definitely increase your number of customers. As we think about the future and the, the trends that are happening what is, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of legacy now. What is the, you know, piece of that you're carving out for yourself? Who, who is, who is Charlie Lowe going to be within that world? What are the things you're going to do? And then ultimately, what are the things you want to be known for uh, as a professional in the retail real estate space? I want to be known as just um, someone that's genuine, genuine, authentic, and someone that's honest and trying to bridge the gap between communities. I think there's just, again, going back to one of our first discussions, there's an adversarial position taken between community stakeholders and developers at times. There's an adversarial position taken between small business owners and developers at times or property owners. And trying to be that person that mediates those confrontations so it works out for everyone, um, that's really important to me. But bigger than that, you know, I want people to you know, look at me as someone who genuinely cares about the community. Um, I stay active. I stay involved. I have always said to all my friends, and I'll tell you this now, you know, if that ever changes, call me out on it. I don't yeah. think it's going to be an issue, but I don't ever want to be the person that just because I'm having success in my field and my craft, that means I'm going to, you know, not work with my guy Lutfi because he's only doing 1500 square foot deals or not helping out my friends um, when they've got an issue with a landlord on one of their retail projects. And, you know, Hey, we've got a leak in the space. Uh, You're not going to get a fee or anything, but what's up with this lease? Can you look through it? I always want to be the guy that people can rely on, but I also want to continue to just try and be a community builder. Um, That's what is most important to me. Well, I love that. And I see that, Charlie. I will call you out if I see anything. I don't I don't suspect I'll have any issues there. But I, I see you out here doing a whole bunch of really cool community building. And I'm excited to see you continue to do that and the projects you're going to continue to work on. Um, 
is there anything else we missed or anything else that you think would be important to, to share uh, with folks who are watching or listening to this about, about what you're doing, what you're up to um, and, uh, and, and some of the more important pieces about the, the business that you're in? City involvement is very, very important. And I say that from the standpoint of, I think people get really caught up in voting for general elections and the impact that those general elections typically have on the community is not as big as you might think. Small. Yeah. And, you know, the public process here in Kansas City, uh, for better or worse, has become very toxic in a lot of capacities. And so I would urge people to pay more attention to their city council elections, pay more attention to who is an honest broker of truth in the city council setting, who is keeping up their end of the bargain, who's spending the time to engage with the community while also engaging with the development community. Um, those are important things because as you know, um, we're at an impasse in Kansas City, I would say from a city and developer standpoint. Yep. And it's a really bad time for that to happen because there are other markets to go to. Right. Um, this out, out of town investment doesn't have to place their money here. It can go to Omaha. It can go to Dayton, Ohio. It can go to uh, Indianapolis, wherever it may be. There are a lot of opportunities to place money where cities are, you know, being aggressive on growth and, you know, also doing equitable development. And that's my, my big thing right now is just trying to make sure people stay engaged and pay attention and not necessarily focus on trigger words and um, hot takes that people just throw out there, whether it's the Kansas City Star or whatever. Sometimes there are things said that are not objective and aren't really, you know, honest in regards to what's taking place. Nope. I love that. We need more voices, you know, cities, that's where your trash gets picked up, your streets get sweeped, your potholes get filled. And it's also who has control over the projects that happen. And ultimately, if you want that Trader Joe's, if you want that target, or if you, you want to see affordable housing, you got to engage in the right ways with the right people and make sure that, you know, they're having the right conversations. And frankly, you know, in my opinion with cities, they understand the math because I think the biggest issue that I've always seen is that there's a, a lack of, you know, education in, on mathematics in this country. And it's all the more evident when you start talking about public finance and, and, and public, you know, private partnerships and development. But Charlie, thank you for your time. This has been so fun. Um, if people want to reach out to you and find more about you, more about what you do, how would they get a hold of you? I check my LinkedIn every day. So hit me up on there. Probably is the best bet. Perfect. Well, thank you for your time and insights. I know uh, our listeners will find everything valuable. I surely did. Um, so thank you again for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Parker. Thank you for tuning in to Invest for the Win. If you found this episode valuable, please take a moment to share it with a friend you think could benefit from the insights of our experts. Also, don't forget to take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Visit investforthewin.com to learn more.